VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times. Now with goals. Hello and welcome to The Game, the football podcast from The Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti and I wish you a happy 2014. Before we begin, don't forget, you can catch the highlights from every Premier League game before anyone else, simply by downloading the Times app to your smartphone. This week, I am excited because joining me in the studio, it's Rory K. Smith, Clive Petty, our boss, and from his beautiful home in Rippenden, it's Ollie K. Later on the show, we will uh, reflect back on the passing of Eusebio, talk some FA Cup, but we're going to start. At Old Trafford. Uh, United and Swansea, what is this, like United's fifth home defeat of the season? Something something absurd like that. I feel like we're going to end up talking Moyes here, um, and we've talked this before. But before we do that, I want to turn it around a tiny bit and mention Swansea. Because, uh, Roy, they, they actually had some, some pretty big injuries. They went there. I, I just want you to assess where are they vis-a-vis... Loudrup, because we've gotten used to them playing a certain way. We've gotten used to them having good players. They, they've spent some money the last few years. If you were Loudrup's personal advisor in terms of his rep, what would you be thinking? They have got injury problems. They have spent some money, and they do still play nice football, but they're not quite the purest team that we kind of associate them with being. I've seen Swansea a fair bit the last couple of months. Uh, does no one else volunteer to drive down the M4? Um, and they're not quite... Um, they're not. They're still nice to watch and stuff, but they're, they're not quite as fluid. They're not quite as, yeah, as sort of passing as as fluent as they used to be. There is a bit more variety there, and it doesn't always work. I'm not sure that all of his signings have been quite what they were meant to be. Pozuelo's sort of okay. Canyas is a bit less than okay. Boney's not. Maybe he scored plenty of goals, but he's he maybe doesn't look quite like he's worth thirteen million quid. It, it's not been an easy season for Swansea. They've come back down to earth a little bit, I think. If I was Loudrup's advisor, I think I'd be I'd be thinking that Swansea's not a bad place to be, but you do wonder whether he might, in the summer, take the next step. Clive, does that say something to the, to the, about sort of the, the transition from from being a well-run club, do everything right, get sort of to mid-table, but then sort of that that next step? Yeah, um, I think there, there's just some remarkable stats, right? I, it's something like in the last four years, um, seven of the eight sides that have finished in the top eight have been the same. It's just the same closed shop time and again, and it's, it's really difficult to break in for more than a season. It's going to get hard as well. I mean, once that financial fair play, and that's what 
that's the the thing that that's going to do is going to make that even harder because as you say Swansea to make that step they've they've established themselves but if they actually want to then take the next step up that does require another level of investment and the the mantra coming out is that you know well we can't jeopardize the, the uh, you know the, the future of this club it's going to take that but that's what it's going to take and for, I think financial for play is going to obviously uh, hamper that I suspect this is an argument we might return to also in light of Ollie's excellent column uh, Saturday about the FA Cup and, and what sort of goals or achievements might be for, for teams that aren't going to be competing for the title. Do you know what, though? there's one interesting thing with Swansea. So basically what seems to happen is that clubs come up and their fans are very kind of realistic and, and accept that you know, you're going to struggle for a couple of years and there's the great story of we just want to be in the Premier League and Stoke were a bit like that and you're trying to find for two or three years. And then normally what happens is everyone thinks, well, actually, we've been here for three years, so we want to win the title now, we want to get in the Champions League, we want to kick on, whatever it is. And suddenly you start sacking managers and the stability that brings you up disappears. Swansea are exempt from that. For so- I don't know quite why it would be, but the obvious guess is what, what they've been through the last ten years and before that. Their fans aren't putting any pressure. They're 13th, I think, in the lead, aren't they? Their fans aren't putting any pressure on Loudrup. There's no kind of sense of dissent or of, of mutiny that they're not they're not moving forward. I think that's fair to say that Swansea haven't moved forward this season after eight years of, of continual progress. And the fans basically seem to be quite happy that that yeah. they are they are what they are and they're, they're still punching above their weight. So you wonder whether there's not going to be... I don't think there's going to be a case that if they finish, say, 12th this year, that anyone's going to be like, well, it's time for Loudrup to go. It kind of helps as well, though, going back to that thing about the FA Cup and what your actual ambitions are as a club. Swansea have been a premiership club and won something. You know, they won the League Cup. They had their day out. They've been satiated in some way of having a bit of glory, which, and, you know, Mr Lambert should possibly look across down the M4 yeah. and see what, you know, see what that does for a club. I... I Moving on to, to in, in the game itself, um, obviously a big win for uh, for Swansea. They take the lead with with Routledge, Chicharito. Uh, yes, he's still around. Um, sort of breaks his uh, his horrible run, uh, equalizes, and you have this bizarre red card from from Fabio, who wouldn't have been on the pitch except for the fact that Rio Ferdinand is thirty five and uh, and hurt himself. Um, he's on three minutes later. He uh, he gets himself sent off for an awful lunge on Canyas, which, funnily enough, I was watching on TV, Michael Owen was like, whoa, he's making a meal of it, you didn't really catch him. And then, like, you kind of see, like, his studs. I'm glad Owen's not not officiating. And then it kind of leads to a sequence of events because he doesn't have any defenders on the bench uh, or or any real options there. He has to play Fletcher at right back. Fletcher is deputized at right back years ago before his illness, and Fletcher gets beaten by Wayne Routledge. I would imagine Wayne Routledge is very quick. He might beat most guys for pace, and... And that leads to Boney's goal and, and Moyes' misery. It's kind of weird how I, when you read it that way, if I were Moyes, I could tell myself, okay, so Fabio's stupidity cost me now 48 hours of, of heartache until we go and, uh, and, and whoop whoever we're playing in the uh, League Cup semifinal. Yeah, I mean, it, it, was a, it was a sequence of events. It was a bit of a chain reaction from the Ferdinand injury. And, and I think clubs who are in a, in a state of transition and clubs who are sort of bemoaning their lot tend to get a, a lot of bad luck. I mean, it was bad luck that Ferdinand got injured, but it wasn't bad luck that... Well, I suppose it was bad luck to the team, but it wasn't, it wasn't an unlucky or unfortunate red card. It was a deserved red card. And I thought United were... I mean, you, you can always make excuses. You can say, well, we, you know, Swansea were playing on the counter-attack. Swansea didn't create all that much. But Swansea, were the be- Swansea for me, were the better team um, for, most of the, uh, for most of that tie. 
And I'm not saying they deserve to win necessarily over the course of the game, but I think United deserve to lose. I think it was two poor performances by two teams that looked tired after the um, after the Christmas program, despite the changes. And it was a flat game, and United yet again were the uh, the worst team out of the two in a flat game. And I would say it was the same against Tottenham on um, New Year's Day. Tottenham didn't have to excel to. To, um, to win at Old Trafford and, and, and neither did Swansea and that to me would be even more worrying for United than than the fact that they are losing games it's the fact that teams are going there and winning without even having to play terribly well or even having to be lucky and there's a there's a compounding effect isn't there with every with every home defeat with every defeat in general but especially with every home defeat the next one becomes more and more likely and that's very worrying we the, the, the you remember when Brendan Rodgers at Liverpool when he struggled initially and he said that it was like trying to build an aircraft while flying. Moyes is trying to prevent an aircraft falling apart whilst flying. What I find absolutely remarkable, and this isn't... I, I don't know if it's Moyes' fault, you guys tell me. So Wayne Rooney's contract isn't sorted for the reasons that we know. There's 18 months to go. Um, if they sell him in the summer, they will sell him for less money than they would have received had they sold him this past summer. I think that much is pretty obvious. But also, Nemanja Vidic is out of contract. Now... Nemanja Vidic isn't that old. He's been relatively fit this season. Well, what gives here, Ollie? Yeah, I, I think it's one of these situations. United seem to often be. Um, uh, they often seem to take the, the view with their older players, the sort of veteran players, mm-hmm. that there's not going to be a con- there's not going to be a problem. Um, in what in getting him to extend his deal? Yeah. Um, I think they've, they've often been very complacent, um, and usually because of the sort of loyalty that that they attract, they, they've not paid a price for that. I mean, with with Carrick, I think they've t- taken it into the final year before. With Evra, uh, Ferdinand, Giggs, you know, Neville, and Skulls before that. I mean, they they tend to take the view, it's a, an Arsenal-like view, if you like, that um, either player is part of the furniture there. They are not going to be too um, offended by the club taking a time and then perhaps offering a, a one year or a one year with a uh, with the offer of a second. The word is that he will be offered a new contract or that there have been discussions about a new contract and they're fairly calm about that. But the the, um, the Rooney situation, I would I would agree, is is far 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 more pressing because I mean it's it's it seems to have been handled appallingly and, and the, the club can the club can say oh well. We had no choice in the summer. We couldn't possibly um, offer a contract last summer while, while he was wanting out. We needed to give him space. Well, it looks like it looks to all the world like Paul Stratford and, and Arunia are, are playing a blinder and, and are forcing United in, into a corner again just by playing fairly sort of obvious tactics. And I, I mean, I, I I'm loath to blame everything on Ed Woodward because I think there are, you know, I, I think he, um, like Moyes, has, has had a very difficult job. But I, I think Woodward has shown extreme naivety in, in perhaps not offering a contract last summer. And if, if, if Stretford and, and Rooney's agents and people like that are saying, well, we don't want to negotiate at the moment, put, put a contract in front of them, put, put your best offer in front of them. And if you know that they're not going to offer that, you know, if you feel that they're not going to accept it, then perhaps it changes the club's um, view somewhat. But I, I think it would have been far more easy to um, tie Rooney to a contract in September or October than it is now that they... You know, things are getting worse by the week and, and there's no guarantee at the moment that they'll be able to um, offer Champions League football by the summer. We've all interacted with David Moyes. 
he's a good person. He's got a great track record uh, at, at Everton. Or you're, you're rolling your eyes, Rory, because you know you set the bar very high. I think he did very well at Everton. I wasn't rolling my eyes. I was I was querying in difficult circumstances, but um, he was Sir Alex Ferguson's personal choice, supposedly. Um, so we were inclined to, I think, view him more favorably than somebody else. But then, by the same token, I, I was watching. Um, the, the post-game discussion on BT Sport on, on, on um, Sunday, and it might surprise some people, but I really get angry at what I hear people say on television. But when I heard Neil Warnock come out, and I'm not going to attempt the accent, Rory would be best place for it, but he says he can't do Camp Yorkshire, which might surprise a few. But um, <laughs> the... No, no, so it's... Yeah, it would be funny. He, he, Warnock comes out and says, you know, you can't tell me that there is any manager out there Mourinho or whatever, who would do a better job than Moyes has done with this squad. And, and I, get, I get really angry. I get really angry when I hear that. Because you could, we should be able to look at Moyes and have some kind of balance and not be at one extreme where some people have him be some kind of incompetent fool and other people say, Moyes has done everything right. Fergie left him a pile of turds. You know, it's, surely it's... it's well, I just think you, you have to temper that. I suppose it's Warnock. It's a, well, no, he's an ex-manager, isn't he? But it's, it's that kind of manager's club. I don't think he just, he just want to come out and what, criticize. Stick up for your mates. Yeah, I, I think, and it, and it is very... So why is he on my television? It is very, it is, well, you'd have to ask BT, they're the ones doubling up the building. You know, he's not in our, hey, he's not in our paper. He's on the telly. You know, that's probably why we don't have him as a, a, a pundit or whatever it is in the paper, because... I think it is that kind of clubby mentality of, you know, Moyes, he is held up there almost, you know, Fergie light, which is why Fergie chose him. You know, he's a strong manager. It didn't, as you know, as you said, didn't he do a wonderful job under difficult circumstances at Everton? He has a persona that of the, you know, strong Glaswegian kind of manager. And I suppose he's, he's not going, he's not under pressure to get sacked. They're not going to sack him this season. His position, I think it is just a case of defending a guy because... It's that managers stick together and no manager's going to want to say, well, for, certainly from that ilk, that we need to get rid of this guy. People say it's, it's Moyes-style football. He's playing like Everton did. No, I mean, they're not playing like Everton did at all. Everton were, in earlier years, they, they played quite direct. I mean, they, in later years, they liked to go long to Fellaini occasionally. But generally, Everton in the last couple of years have played some nice football. Osman... Arteta before he was um, sold, Pinar, more significantly than that. Everton, without the ball, were one of the best organised, fittest, most resilient, tenacious teams in the Premier League. This United team currently is probably the least tenacious, most feeble team um, without the ball in the Premier League. And I, I, I include the ones at the bottom. Roy, what, what really bugs me, um, and I agree with pretty much everything Ollie said, is... A, the fact that they're playing badly, apart from results. But um, if you buy the Warnock argument, then what the hell are we paying managers for, right? I mean, you, you expect managers to go and, and, and develop players and to give an identity and so on. If, if it's just down to the players, you know, why give Moyes a six-year contract? Why, why not give him a weekly contract? Well, you know, why not get Dave, our, our, our producer here, who I'm sure you, you'd manage United for less money than Moyes, yeah? Well, why not get him to manage? If it's all done, just down to the players, right? Well, it's amazing how many, how often managers talk themselves out of, of relevance. I remember Hodgson saying that all tactics were the same. If all tactics are the same, what the hell is the point of his job? Do you know what I mean? That was when he was at Liverpool. Uh, I, I'm not sure if he's, he, might have changed, he might have changed his view now. But, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. If, if anyone, if any manager could do the, to, to do as well as Moyes, if that is the limit of their performance, why not go and get... Some lead two manager would be much cheaper. All right, moving on to uh, to the Emirates, Arsenal and Spurs. Now, 
Arsenal do it again. Olivier Giroud's out. Uh, Ramsey's out. Mesut Ertzel is back from his shoulder problem. Uh, and by the way, I, people have asked me, what are you, why were you, uh, what, what, were you making allusions there when you talked about Ozil's injury? No, it was more to the fact that Ozil, uh, from what I was told, needed basically a rest and that he would come back stronger than before and that he doesn't have any kind of long-term congenital problem to his shoulder or anywhere else. Uh, Ozil came off the bench, but with the lineup that they had out there, they played Theo Walker um, up front. And, um, but Clive, I thought they played really well against Spurs. They, the, yeah, I'm not, you're never going to get me to say that, but they were, <laughs> they were, um, they were definitely sharper. They looked more alert. I mean, it was as if Tottenham under, uh, Sherwood and this sort of, you know, um, uh, sort of entertaining and more positive approach is taking, but I, I think you're right after the sort of Christmas period. Um, I mean, I saw them against West Brom and they were, they were pretty down, actually. But then again, against Stoke, that kind of work. I don't know, maybe say how bad Stoke are. And then, obviously, the exertions of, of winning at Old Trafford. I just thought they they looked, they didn't look up as as up for it as, as Arsenal did, most certainly. I think Arsenal were more energetic, more alert. You know, Walker and um, Rose didn't get forward, as, certainly didn't get forward as much as they did in the uh, previous games. Rose was left a bit ex- exposed by the exertions of, uh, what's his name, Nabry. Um, could have been helped out a bit there, a bit more, I think. But true, yeah, Arsenal deserved to win. There's no doubt about that. I didn't. I, and it's not so much that they were sort of overrun in midfield. So much, I think. I just think they were the better team on the day. They had. They looked more alert. And and the thing about the midfield was, as you say, no Ozil, no Ramsey. But that's not Arsenal's problem, is it? They've got an abundance of good midfield. You know, that midfield still had what was it, Arteta and Cazorla, Wilshire. I mean, that's a that's a good midfield to get past. So. You know, they were the better team. Yeah, you know, on the te- I've said it now. Look at that. <laughs> you you have. Me do. Finally, yeah. you've, from saying you would never say it. Yeah, in the space of Took a minute. About the space of a minute. Look at that. All right, Ollie. So when uh, when Theo Walker, is, as he did, um, plays up front as a striker and, and plays very well, as 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 he certainly did, we reignite this debate: should he be playing up front? Blah blah blah. But I want to put this to you though: that if Giroud is your first choice centre forward. When you bring in Walcott, necessarily, you have to play differently because they're different players with different skill sets. I, I, I would say that if you look at the way Arsenal played in the first few months of the season when Giroud was playing extremely well, they would struggle to play that way with Walcott as the number nine. I mean, they, they, they played well on, um, on Saturday and he played very well. And his, his link-up play was far, far better than it, it would ever have been, you know, two, three years ago when, when he looked very raw and he looked like he didn't have the... The tools to play that role at all, uh, certainly not for a top top team. Whenever you speak to Theo, which the Times tends to do about once every two and a half weeks, um, there's invariably a big interview with Theo Walcott in our paper. Well, that would be you. If yeah. you want to speak to Theo, if you want to read anything about Theo Walcott, read the Times. Um, it's amazing. I found it find it really odd. He's a nice fellow, Theo, but find it really, his obsession with playing up front it is just completely bizarre. It's I, I can't I cannot explain why he he seems to associate it with. The move, the move into a central role with the fulfilment of his promise. I think it seems to be that that's always been his aim. That he wants to prove he's good enough to be a number nine for club and country, and he is slightly obsessed with that. I, I think, I think I'd rather have Giroud than Walcott. Walcott can do a job there. He has improved, as Castorino says in the paper this morning. He makes those little semi runs. He knows when to slow slow himself down. It's not just a case of sitting on the last shoulder and hairing towards the, a ball over the top. He has matured as a striker. 
and he's an important option for Arsenal. But I find his, and this is this is where it's it's led from because Walcott wants to be a striker. That's where it comes from. This sort of he should be a striker thing. It comes from Theo, and I find it bizarre that he that he's so obsessed with it. Well, the, the other thing which strikes me is looking at um, Arsenal's attacking midfielders is if you move, I mean, Walcott is different from the other wide players uh, Arsenal have um, in the sense that he has a lot of pace and he can and he can stretch people from the wing. Um, if you move him to centre forward, then you're you're down a fast winger. You I become think, much more identical. Yeah. Well, uh, apart from Nabry, uh, who you know has got other skills too. I don't know that they have anybody else particularly fast in wide areas. No, well, that's, well, Podolski, Podolski, Podolski's Gibbs not slow, winger. is Podolski, he? Yeah. yeah, but Podolski with his injuries, though, you yeah. don't quite know. But um, it just seems like a. I don't know, it just seems like, like a non-starter uh, as far as I'm concerned. All right, enough of that. Let's talk more FA Cup, though, but let's talk about something else. I, obviously, Ollie wrote, uh, I thought, uh, a very good column on Saturday on the back of uh, Paul Lambert's comments where, for those who didn't see it in a nutshell, he said that if they were being honest, most managers would probably um, could probably do without uh, the FA Cup. Ollie, as I know you, you threw out a few suggestions for a revamp. I, I was struck by something. I, I actually... Uh, sat there and I look at all the teams that played on, on Saturday. There were 22 teams on Saturday who, uh, who hosted FA Cup games. 17, sorry, 16 of those 22 had uh, lower attendances for the FA Cup than they did for an average league game this season. Um, in some places, it was way down. Um, and not just in the Premier League, places like Newcastle and Villa, where it was down you know, 38% or, or 50%. Um, also, depressingly, in, uh, in in the championship, Wigan, the holders where where, where you were, Rory. You know, the, the, I think they had what six sixty six hundred, which is yep. you know the average fifteen thousand in the league. Overall, it was about twenty percent lower on Saturday alone. I imagine if you factor in Sunday, it's comparable. Now, all the FA traditionalists and purists say, "Oh, you don't touch it. No, it's the magic of the FA Cup." But I'm wondering, all these people who love the FA Cup so much, they're not the ones who are actually going to games, right? Uh, they're the ones who are sitting on their sofas. They're probably like closet rugby fans who decide to adopt the FA Cup for a weekend because it's fantastic, right? Am, am I wrong here, Ollie? I, I'd like to know, does the FA Cup need a revamp? And um, if we just go around, to, does it need a revamp? And what would you suggest? Pick up on one point there. I mean, in terms of the attendances, these days an awful lot of people in crowds at, at football matches are season ticket holders. That is, that is the way it works, particularly at the bigger clubs. The way to get a guaranteed ticket is being a season ticket holder. You don't have the sort of culture of turning up every week uh, on the hoof that you once had. And because of the prices and because people have so much else going on in their lives, it is, it is a lot harder now to sort of justify going to a game. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. On a Saturday, when, you, when you've got a possibility not to, when you, haven't, when you haven't paid up front, I mean, some clubs make you pay up front, or they charge you for every... Um, cup game that y- your team goes through you so you're probably secretly hoping that they get knocked out in the third round but it's I mean the, the expense and, and the difficulty of going to an extra game when you've already paid through the nose for 19 league games or 23 league games if you're in the football league is is considerable I'm not surprised at all that people that, that, that attendances are down but in terms of your more general point about a revamp I would scrap replays like a shot I mean it, it, they they don't really excite people. I think it would excite people more if there's um, if there was an outcome on the day in, in terms of extra time and, and, and penalty shootouts. And the argument against it has always been um, about the income that it generates for um, for, for, low, for low league teams if they have sort of two bites of the cherry. Well, I would believe that more if it wasn't completely at, at odds with um, with everything else that the the FA seem to be doing with the competition. I mean, it, everything they do seems to be about money with the FA Cup at the expense of tradition. Scrappy replays would mean that it, it's more exciting on the day. You don't have these interminable replays. You don't have a, a fourth round draw at two o'clock on a Sunday where I think five out of the 16 ties were um, even readable. I'm, I might add a, a, another mooted suggestion which you touched upon, of course, was um, maybe how about we don't play this in the first Saturday in in January when mm. yeah. you know teams are coming off of four games. I in think 10 it should days. be put back just straight after the, the the Christmas the the already overcrowded Christmas period and then into a cup competition. I think there's there's the competition no favours at all really. I'd I'd also draw all Premier. What is it? In, I don't remember if, I don't know if they do it formally in France or whether it's some sort of informal arrangement where you get top flight sides to go into lower league teams. Yeah, that's um, they have it in some countries. Yeah, basically, whichever team is further up plays away from home. Yeah, I mean that's but that might add a frisson of of excitement. Um, I think well, it would also. Be- I, I would definitely, definitely not do that. I, I think I, th- I think the, the the best thing about the FA Cup is the fact that it is entirely random. It is um, in in no way a level playing field. You can get to the final by having sort of five very easy draws on the run. I, I think the randomness of it makes it a great leveller. Oh, I mean, I think we can all agree, though, that, that this is probably a debate that, that they should be looking at and that they should be considering um, different things just to make it, I think, more exciting and, and get more people interested in it. Ollie's quite right about all the, the pricing issues and the, the how you buy the ticket issues for, for reducing crowds. I think the other thing is that there is an element of self-fulfilling prophecy that the more managers, and it is led by managers, it's not that the, the press don't about how worthless the Cup is. I think most people in the press love the Cup. Mm. I, I, I don't know a journalist who, who really resents the FA Cup. The more managers and clubs show that they're not interested in the FA Cup or the League Cup, the fewer people will go. Just people aren't stupid. If you, you have your manager sitting there saying, well, it's, do you know what to do, do without this, especially over the course of sort of 10, 15 years, you're more likely to think, well, it's only the Cup. Do you know what I mean? That's, well, well, yeah, that well, what was Villa's attendance, if you said you looked at I think they got 20,000, but in Villa they? Park, obviously, that's... But, that's, yeah. but in Villa Park, that's, yeah, that's not pretty, pretty many. Yeah, and it's it's not as if they can encourage people through the door 
for Villa during league games because that's not the actually no. It's about they got they drew about twelve thousand fans less than than they drew than their than their average sentence, yeah. in, in 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 the Premier League. But I, mean, I, I think you know ultimately these are supporters. The other thing, the other point I think which is all worth making, we talked about the. Um, you know the sort of the, the prevalence of, of season tickets and so on. At a lot of these clubs who are close to sellouts almost every week, like Newcastle, for example, you would think that something like this is the opportunity for other fans who can't afford season tickets to go to the games, right? Yeah. So you would actually think that these one-offs, the attendance would actually be higher and not so much lower. Uh, instead, incredibly, in the top three divisions, and it's not just a Premier League thing, because people forget the championship is actually very popular too. The only of the teams that played on Saturday, the only team that had a higher attendance for their game than they did for the um, for their average league game, were actually Blackburn, despite the fact that that their game were on television. And you know, and you can say, oh, it's all those Man City fans who drove down the road. Man, maybe, but the point is that is the one game. Um, on uh, of teams in the top three divisions, all the others were like sort of you know non-leagues. The, uh, the other the other thing that I think should be mentioned is that, and it, this is what infuriates me about this kind of the cup is a distraction. So all the Premier League teams have twenty-five man squads, pretty much full, pretty much full of players. The two or three might have a few youth players who, have to, who they have to chuck in, young promising players, whatever. The these players need to play when are they going to play Does, if you're a footballer you're sitting there two, you're getting two or three games a season in the league surely not only do you want the cup to come along so, and stay in, for, stay in it for as long as possible so that you can play your manager should as well because it's the it's one easy way of keeping yeah, morale I, relatively I, listen, high I'm sure those, those 11 dudes who lined up for West Ham all really wanted to play yeah. that day um, but you know, by the same token, as a fan, if you're a West Ham fan and, you've, and you went there like that poor little boy who was crying, oh. um, you know, you're going to be like, what the hell? You know, I mean, I, th- I think that's a natural reaction. On, a, on, a, on obviously a, a melancholy note, um, Eusebio, um, the legendary Portuguese footballer, passed away uh, this weekend. Um, now, none of us saw him play live, um, but I think we're all... We'll have a pretty clear sense of his of his status in the game, and Ollie, uh, you wrote about him. I, what, what what struck me about Isabio was that if you look at the generation of players who came, sort of actually really his generation of players, you're talking Pele, you're talking Cruyff, you're talking um, Bobby Moore, um, you're talking Franz Beckenbauer. It's pretty remarkable. Uh, all those guys that were sort of born in the in the 1940s, and what. What struck me about it, though, was that was that just an incredible generation of players, or was it actually that that was kind of you know that was that was the '60s and early '70s? That's when football really became something that everybody could watch around the world, and we became more aware of these guys, and 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 so we sort of view them in a, in a slightly different light. In- interesting question. I mean, I, I would think off the top of my head, I mean, people rarely talk about the sort of foreign players of the 50s. They talk about Di, Di Stefano and they, they talk about Puskas, but to, clearly the, the knowledge and the worldliness wasn't quite there in the same way in the 50s. In the 60s, you suddenly had all these sort of superstars emerging, um, the ones you mentioned. And then the, the, you know, the 70s and, and, and the 80s, they, you know, we'll probably talk about sort of one or two players at, at, at any time, you know, Platini, Maradona, Rummenigge, Muller, Cruyff, who who really resonated more than everybody else. But it seems like that the sixties, the mid sixties, were clearly um, something of a golden age, not just from the point of view of 
England winning the World Cup, but you know you had Eusebio at his peak in, in the 1966 World Cup. We probably should have had Pele at his peak in the 1966 World Cup, but he was famously kicked out of the tournament. And and you know it's it's you know, it, it clearly was a bit of a golden age. And and Eusebio was was absolutely one of the icons of that golden age. And he, he's he's you look at the statistics, and and, and I, I pulled one out. It's not just the fact that he scored 473 and 440 games for Benfica. It was at one stage of five seasons he scored 223 in 162 appearances. Now, you can say, well, it was the Portuguese league. It was it was the 60s. Nobody could defend back then. Well, people get you know strikers, and probably particularly black centre forwards. Would it be would it be fair to say that would probably have been kicked. From pillar to post in those days, yeah. so to to to, um, to have that kind of record is is incredible. I mean, there was, I mean, sort of on on the pitch, Rory, he was perhaps one of the first players to really combine um, athleticism and and technique. He was also somebody who uh, I mean, I, I I met the guy twice and. One of the points he made was that he became like a symbol to, to Portugal. But at the time, Salazar was the uh, you know he was, he was the military di- dictator that ran, that ran the country. He wouldn't let him leave the country um, to, to join another club. And I don't know. There was almost like a, a latent sense of, of bitterness between that and the great Portuguese players who came afterwards. What struck me though is by him staying there and the way the football landscape was then, a team like Benfica could win two European cups. Now today, except for the you know 2004 Mourinho Twilight Zone, and even that team was broken up completely. I mean, we may never see a Portuguese team win a European Cup again, and that applies across the board. And did we? I mean, obviously, nobody says Salazar was a good thing, but did we lose something there? I think European football over the last the last 20 years has lost something enormous, which is the power of surprise and the the ability for a team to to come together in in I don't want to say a lesser nation or a, but maybe a poorer league that can take on the sort of established elite of, of Europe. And you've got to remember that the established elite of Europe was established in that 1960s golden period. That's when the big names, you had Real, I suppose, before that. But that's when, in that 20-year span between 55 and, and 75, that's when Barcelona, when Real, when the, when the two Milan clubs, when Juve to an extent, Bayern, Ajax, these, these clubs all kind of established their credentials as the greats of Europe. And though, but until the, the onset of the Champions League, I guess, you could get a, a Benfica, a Red Star Belgrade, a Star Bucharest, who could come along, and because of a unique generation of players or because of a great coach or whatever, they could take those teams on. And that has definitely been lost, and that, that's very sad that, that that doesn't happen anymore. That you're not, we said, said before about it's the same, the same eight, seven or eight teams that finish in the top of the Premier League, the same eight teams that get to the quarterfinals of the Champions League. You don't get teams like Benfica anymore. And yes, the price that Portugal had to pay for that was a, a brutal dictatorship, which obviously is a price not worth paying. But the fact that Eusebio had to stay at Benfica established that, that club's legacy in Europe, and that, that's a, a tremendous thing. Clive, just to, to, to wrap this up, I, it seems to me that before Cristiano and, and Lionel Messi came along to really muddy the waters, it was pretty simple. When you talked about the greatest player of all time, you, you would say Pele or Maradona in whatever order. And then depending what your sort of footballing culture was, you would add a third, right? So in some parts of the world, it was, it was Di Stefano. Here in England, I guess it was George Best or Dennis Law, if you're from north north of the border. Um, you know, elsewhere, they might have mentioned Cruyff, they might have mentioned Beckenbauer, or they might have mentioned Eusebio. Obviously, Cristiano and, and Messi have kind of, <laughs> they've kind of screwed up that dynamic uh, at this stage. But is it important to 
to remember these people or does it become hard to relate to because nobody ever saw them? I mean, I, I was thinking back like to something like, like, like Duncan Edwards or certainly people our generation didn't see them. Uh, the generation before us did, at least on television, flickering images and whatever else. But I always think back to sort of, you know, Duncan Edwards and how I think apart from Brian Glanville, I don't know anybody who has ever seen this guy play. And yet, you know, when people go like, oh, the greatest ever, and they'll put Duncan Edwards in there. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. And obviously, he, he, he passed on as, as a, at a young age. But in terms of how we relate to, to these guys, yeah, you know what I'm saying? I think, yeah, I mean, it, I think it does go back to that kind of, I suppose, you know, the 1960s thing, well, the 50s and 60s thing. You know, it was the dawn of a lot of things. You know, the 50s, brought, you know, the first teenager, 60s was, you know, an enlightened time in, in a lot of areas. And so, as you're right, as, as time passes on, there will be fewer and fewer people who will be talking about the likes of Duncan Edwards. It won't, it won't kind of mean anything. I think Eusebio, Pele, that's kind of fading, but they are, they're the first. They're the pioneers of, the, as you say, the legends when we start talking about the world's greatest players. We saw very little of these guys. You know, it was a mystery. It was a, it was a joy because you didn't see them every week. You know, so you, you really did marvel at them because you only got a glimpse of them. Uh, I think... The thing about Ronaldo and Messi, you know, you just go on YouTube, you can watch every single thing about right. those guys, you know, and kind of, but, I'm but not what, saying that takes the mystique away from them, they're, they're wonderful players, but they, I, perhaps it just shows my age, that there is a mystique about Eusebio's and the Pele's and whatever it is because of that sort of sepia-tinged memories that Although, we have. But there's, what's really interesting, don't you think, is that there's, football always, and I suppose it's true in, in quite a lot of areas of life, has this tension between the glorification of the new, where we're, we're obsessed with kind of saying that such and such is the best team ever and we want this to be the, the greatest World Cup ever and the greatest player ever, but also this complete lionisation of the past. So I, I would imagine, and you don't know, but in, in 50 years' time, when we're all very old men or dead, then... People, for yourself. people will still be talking about about we'll still we'll tell our grandkids about Messi and Ronaldo and that's a, a source of pride I think certainly for me that I've seen Messi play live I think that's something I mentioned to my grandkids they probably won't listen but also people will continue to say Pele and Maradona people who who we we never saw you know we, Maradona we saw play but Pele we never saw saw play we will continue to sort of fate them and to to make the case that they are they were the best of their time. And Eusebio counts as one of those. He's one of the immortals. All right, time now for some quick hits with a League Cup semi-final looming. Sam Allardyce sends out a shadow side against Nottingham Forest and he gets whacked 5-0 and a Panenka included in that uh, as well. Uh, <clears throat> Clive, I suspect Big Sam feels pretty secure in his job for now if he's going to go and uh, do something like that and play a bunch of 10-year-olds. Yeah, so you're showing your age again there. You have to say a Perlo now because we're going back there you know. One for the kids, Panenka, isn't it? You know. <laughs> anyway, uh, sorry, Big Sam. No, you know, I don't think he should feel fit. I was, I was waiting for him to come out with a typical Sam Allardyce statistic that would that would you know uh, solve show why his team was so bad. You know, well, actually, you know, since I've been manager, that's the only time we've lost against Forest. You know, so I don't think I'm doing too badly. Well, that's wasn't good enough. I mean, they, yeah, West Ham have terrible injuries. They haven't got a centre back standing that can help them. But I mean, that again is down to you know that's your squad, Sam. All right, uh, but when he when he wins the League Cup and keeps uh, West Ham up, then everything will be fine again. Manchester City are held at Blackburn Rovers, giving up a late, late, late goal to Scott Dan with a bit of help from Costel Pentilimon, the enormous Costel Pentilimon. Ollie, uh, Joe Hart's had his ups and downs too, even when he was given a chance to win his starting job back. Should City be looking for a goalkeeper? They should certainly um, keep an open mind on it because because 
I mean, I, I don't think Pantillamon is good enough to be first choice goalkeeper. But and, and, and Joe Hart has had a has had a poor twelve months or thirteen months or however long you you want to call it. But Hart absolutely needed that time out, not only psychologically, but to work on a, a few things technically and and perhaps to sort of re, start rebuilding his game again. And Eve Hart gets his form back on track, gets his mind straight. Um, as they believe he will, then th- there won't be a problem. Jose Mourinho doesn't want his players to dive, but they seem to continue doing so this week. It was Ramirez, and that was even in the 2-0 win at Derby. Um, now, Jose came out afterwards, and I don't think he really helped himself by, um, you know, he said, well, yeah, uh, he did dive. Uh, it was correct to give a yellow card. And then he started talking about players at other clubs who dive. Roy, I, if you were Jose, how would you play? Would you just kind of say, like, oh, yes, they shouldn't be diving. I'll talk to them. And then just kind of go on about your business instead of, continuing to go back to other clubs? If I was Jose or any manager, I would tell my players that if they're going to dive, to do it well and not badly, because I don't think it's a problem. But given that oh, yeah, I for, I, oh, sorry, I'm sorry, I forget. You're the person who's, uh, who's ethically I, uh, neutral when it comes I, to diving and I'm shooting. Di- I'm diving neutral in the same way as the Premier League is ownership neutral. I don't see the problem with it. I realise that we live in some sort of puritanical, moralistic society where we all have to get head up about these terrible foreign things. Uh, so I suppose what I'd do if I was Jose is, and, I, and I wasn't just being honest and saying, right, everyone dives, it's not a bad thing, is I'd do what he's doing already, which is saying it's kind of trying to distract people when his players do it and criticising everyone else when they do it. Liverpool cruised to a 2-0 win over Oldham as Brendan Rodgers uh, sends out a bunch of reserves against his son's team. Huh? Favouritism there. Uh, Clive, uh, you're a rare Spurs fan in a hierarchy of Reds. Uh, would it be good for the Premier League if Liverpool finished in the top four? I don't really care if Liverpool... Made, apart from the fact that if they do get into the top four, it probably means it's going to be at Tottenham's expense. <laughs> so, uh, no, that is not a good thing. Um, the only thing of Liverpool getting back in the top four, it means that the you know the hierarchy of the Premier League is broadened out uh, to a, a wider spectrum of teams again, and that's, the only, that's one of the good things I can say about it, I guess, but... I'm, I'm Liverpool neutral, whether they do well or not, to be quite honest. <laughs> Ole Gunnar Solskjaer wins on his debut for Cardiff, 2-1 at Newcastle. Ollie, your verdict on the latest beneficiary of Mr Tan's generosity. Well, I can't answer that question without um, taking the opportunity to say that I thought the um, sacking and, and the destabilisation of Mackay was, was scandalous. I thought it was extremely poor. But well, like leaking emails to the media. club in that way, then I would think that Solskjaer is, is more of a quiet unassuming presence who, who will perhaps keep things on a bit more of an even keel and, and perhaps dampen some of the um, excesses of, of the of the chairman. He's clearly extremely good on a technical, tactical side. That's what everybody at Man United says. But I, I think his big challenge will be managing upwards. And I, I don't think he, he can afford to be malleable and, and acquiescent in terms of what Vincent Tan wants. But I, I, I think he's got to be forceful with Vincent Tan and the board without being as perhaps strong-minded and stubborn as, as Mackay justifiably became. Leeds lose at Rochdale. Brian McDermott gets an earful from travelling supporters. Rory, we don't often get to talk Leeds or stuff outside the Premier League, let alone two teams playing each other from outside the Premier League. But you're from that neck of the woods. You wrote a wonderful blog about Leeds itself and as a city and whatever. So can you enlighten us on what's going on and whether... Uh, they'll ever get to live the dream again at Elland Road? Well, I think that was their fifth straight defeat, or certainly their fifth game without a win. Leeds is obviously very embarrassing to lose at Rochdale, although having said that, if you looked at the draw... There is uh, some kind of rivalry there, yes? They're local well, rivals? No, not. They're probably... that's, that's Regional not, rivals? To Ollie Kay in Rippenden, that's probably the big derby. Rochdale against <laughs> Leeds, that is that is his big... Like, they'll have, in the streets of Rippenden, there will have been bloodshed about that game. 
no, it's they're struggling a bit. They're actually, I think, they're, I think they're still seventh or eighth in the championship, so they're not entirely out of shot of the playoffs. The problem is basically with Leeds that they, for so long they've had so many lone players and average players come in. They've got a couple of decent players there. Ross McCormack I quite like Murphy, the lad who was at Crew, but it's an average patchwork of a squad as so many of them are in the Championship. McDermott's a decent manager. He's not. He's not kind of an inspirational messiah figure, but he'll he'll get them relatively relatively well organised. He's doing okay. Probably didn't deserve the abuse he got at Rochdale, but that said, it was an embarrassing result. Gab, one for you. Uh, Juventus hosted Roma last night. What happened? Well, what happened is that uh, uh, Juventus won 3-0. Uh, they're eight points clear at the top now. Roma's first defeat in 17 games uh, uh, since uh, appointing Rudy Garcia. Juventus just established their, their dominance early. Conte played it right, absorbs the pressure, and then hit them on the break. That midfield with Pogba and Vidal is just really, really scary. Tevez was tremendous in setting up the opening goal. De Rossi got himself stupidly sent off. Pretty much that was that. They are a much, much better side than Roma. All right, that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to my excellent guests, Clive Petty and Ollie K from Rippenden. Thanks also to the equally excellent Rory K. Smith. Um, now, they're all on Twitter, and they all love to uh, interact with you on Twitter. It's uh, uh, Ollie K. Times. Uh, Oliver K. Times uh, loves to receive your tweets. Clive, you're, you're, what, you're like C3PO. It's going to come with an adult rating this podcast soon, isn't it? You're, you're like C3PO. I'm a, just CP01 will do. Okay, yeah. but it's C-E-E-P-E-P-E-P-E-P-E-P-E-P-E-P-E-P-E-P-E-P-E-P-E-P-E-P-E-P-E-P-E-P-E-P-E-P-E-P-E-P-E-P-E-P-E-P-E-P-
for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.